Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the weekly podcast. Joining me today is Osama Javed Mirza, who I've known for a very long time, and uh, he's been uh, quite motivational, like watching his journey just on LinkedIn uh, and social media. So, yeah, Osama, welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself a little? Uh, thank you very much, Muzamil. Uh, it's been quite a journey, and I've known you from the very beginning of it. Uh, I am a social entrepreneur and an educationist, and I am the founder and CEO of a social enterprise called Saving Nine. And at the same time, I work as an education consultant for various organizations. That's awesome. Achha, so let's talk about where like this whole journey uh, towards being an entrepreneur started. So let's start with your educational journey. Um, you went to school at Head Start, and then you went to LUMS, right, for your undergrad? It was a very sort of chaotic journey. I went into Head Start after A-levels thinking that I was going to do liberal arts because, you know, I was really fond of studying subjects like philosophy and humanities. But at the same time, I loved the sciences as well. Um, I applied to American universities, ended up not going, financial reasons and all that. So, uh, you know, parents told me I applied to LUMS. So I applied to the LUMS School of Science and Engineering and I got in. And, and uh, at the end of my first year, you have to sort of choose what your major is. And I fell in love with right. physics, so I decided to study physics. Uh, but then what happened was that I also got the opportunity to take lots of electives. So I started mm -hmm. studying philosophy again. I'm like, this is what I want to do my, you know, further studies in. I love philosophy. But then what happened was that uh, at LUMS, they had this uh, student-run emergency mm -hmm. medical services department. Uh, and, you know, they were advertising on campus and the dream was that, you know, you undergo like a semester's worth of training and then you as a student are responsible for dealing with emergencies on campus. So, you know, I've always been a very clumsy human being and I thought that, you know, this is an opportunity I have to sort of perhaps begin to reform myself. So right. I took the course and that changed my life. Um, I nearly failed it. No, wait, I did fail it. And then I retook it again. And uh, the second time I took it, I passed it. And then I went on to deal with like 250 emergencies on campus. And uh, amazing. in my last year, I became head of training of that program. Right. And that, that's where I found my calling. I fell in love with teaching and I fell in love with uh, helping people save lives. So, right. um, so, so after LUMS, I then started teaching at Head Start, where I taught uh, physics and math and first aid uh, as an extracurricular. And then I got the Fulbright and I went to Teachers College Columbia University for my master's uh, in education, uh, where I thought nice. a lot about, uh, you know, how can you reform medical education within Pakistan and first mm -hmm. education in particular. And I also, uh, uh, you know, fulfilled my dream of becoming a licensed uh, emergency medical technician uh, from New York State. And I came back to Pakistan back in 2017. And that was what led me to launch Saving Nine, which is my social enterprise dedicated to teaching people how to save lives through first aid and mental health education. That's amazing. So, so um, you fell in love with, uh, like you picked physics and that's what you were studying uh, during your undergrad. So did you ever want to continue mm -hmm. doing something related to that field? I mean, you taught physics at Head Start for a bit, but did you ever think or like that was going to be your calling or once you found the emergency services program, you just thought, okay, this is it. I don't like being put into a box. So I don't like mm -hmm. being called any one thing. I'm like, let me be yeah. 
let me be fluid let my identity continue to evolve and be as it is like i like being a scientist sometimes i like being a teacher sometimes i like being an entrepreneur sometimes i'm a combination of all these things but yeah. i'm not just any one of them uh, so it's a bit like that for me so like um, i i i still have physics in my everyday life because uh, uh you, you you see in in uh, medical education a lot of concepts transfer over from science education so for example mm-hmm. if we're talking about blood pressure right most people in pakistan will have no idea what is the difference between when we say na ke blood pressure high hai they mm-hmm. won't know whether this means that is the you know like matlab ki khoon jo hai wo matlab ki zyada dabav se you know matlab ki chal raha hai ya is it is it the heart that's pumping faster they won't understand these conceptual differences so right. like a lot of the work that i do uh, in medical education is applying uh, the basic principles of effective science teaching to the medical world for lay persons so in that sense physics continues to be with me and at the same time in a personal capacity uh, i do lots of education consultancies for example i was mm-hmm. part of the alif ilan campaign which was a five year campaign in pakistan to uh you know uh, pressurize uh, the government to take education uh, uh, in a substantial direction forward to get a lot of uh, children who were unenrolled back into school and to put a lot of emphasis on science education so i have to des- design a lot of that work in terms of their science education approach and last year as a consultant i also worked with uh, the punjab school education department where i developed a uh, science education policy for them and at the same time also uh, oversaw teacher training and the you know revamping of a thousand science and computer labs across punjab so nice physics and science are a continuous part of my life and uh, at the same time i also apply them to my passion of medical education very nice um so what do you think is the importance of um like uh, having a science education or basic understanding of the sciences because uh me for example i didn't take any sciences in my or a levels i didn't study either physics biology or chemistry after the 8th grade so i've been really mm-hmm. out of touch with all of those subjects like um and i feel like a lot of people who pick the humanities like me um tend to fall under that uh, bracket so like what is the importance of having a science education in maybe your day to day life well my my view is that having just a science education or having just a humanities education mm-hmm. why can't we have both so like yeah. i stumbled upon this international baccalaureate curriculum ib curriculum and in that it's compulsory for you to take a science and a humanities and a language subject it's beautiful within high school you are mandated to study all three things uh so i i th- i think that's beautiful right because in the 21st century you need to know about science you need to know about biology physics chemistry you need to know about uh you know how uh, your genetics might be modified in this century uh in yeah. order to produce what we call designer babies you would need to know uh about nuclear warfare uh you would need to know about um you know like uh, you 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 do uh, pharmaceutical companies hoti hain what sort of environmental mm-hmm. impact are they having you need to know about these things but at the same time you also need to know about uh, how science relates to the world around us right so for example science is something very political so if we're talking about for example uh, the environment climate change right so so what the humanities do is they allow you to think okay there are some companies that are developing uh, you know nuclear power uh, capacity 
but but you know then what what impact does this have on the environment what impact does this have on the surrounding politics like you know if if we talk about democracy and we talk about pakistan mm. i i i feel that we don't have enough people lobbying for scientific issues that affect all of us like most mm. of us are you know very happy that we are a nuclear powered state but none of us know what the actual ramifications of that are or you know where do we go from here or and how do we for example focus on developing nuclear technology for peaceful purposes there is a mm -hmm. nuclear power reactor within karachi uh, that we should all be lobbying for to be safer because the thing is that if god forbid a tsunami were to hit karachi then at some point we would have a nuclear meltdown over there but no one knows about this no one even knows how to advocate for it because you know uh, number one we aren't a lot of people aren't really taught um science secondly those who are taught science aren't taught how to connect it with the world around them the politics of the world around them the sociology of the world around them so i feel like everyone needs to study science and everyone needs to study the humanities together in high school right okay yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and maybe i should have done that in high school as well okay I anyway i've um, done that too yeah <laughs> but yeah actually let's going back to um, you getting the fulbright and uh, going to columbia to study um how is that how did you manage to secure the fulbright because i i know that this is like a highly competitive thing and people work really hard to try and get the scholarship because uh, of the opportunities that it gives you so uh, what advice would you give people who are trying to uh, get a fulbright scholarship right now apply do not think you will not get it because before applying for the fulbright i got rejected from every single uk university i have ever applied to and uh, i got rejected from quite a few us universities i applied to individually and in undergrad i got rejected from almost every american university i applied to so i have a long uh, illustrious history of rejections so right. you know i almost did not apply for the fulbright at all uh, it was abu who emotionally blackmailed me into applying he's like you are applying so i'm like okay abu if you say so i will apply and uh, then i didn't give any university preferences either uh in the full bite they give you the option of suggesting which universities you should go to i'm like kai bhi bas mujhe le jana hai kai bhi to matlab ki then you know like uh, then columbia happened they chose columbia of their own accord and i got in with scholarship uh from the university as well and that allowed me to go so miracles mm -hmm. it it was a miracle in my opinion and um, i believe that you know a lot of people end up not applying to the full bite because they think oh we didn't have a 4.0 gpa i didn't have a 4.0 gpa or anything near it back at lums and you know they think that oh we have a less than stellar gre score hum kaise karenge lekin mm. uh, because i've served on the fulbright interview panel and i've processed right. fulbright applications myself i can tell you that they look for uh, people who have a story they look for people who want to create impact upon their return in pakistan it's not just about being book smart so apply to the fulbright if you're passionate about creating social impact nice okay so speaking of creating social impact let's get uh, into saving nine um so mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit more about what exactly the organization does like it's an emergency services uh organization you give you can you give consultancies and classes and you teach people how to uh help out in emergency situations or what what exactly do you do so saving nine's mission is to teach everyone how to save lives through first aid and mental health education uh mm -hmm. now the thing is that we began as providing first aid training services uh, to schools corporations and universities uh, but then what we quickly as a team realized is that you know a lot of people simply don't have access to emergency services 
And mm -hmm. if we wait for the government to give them emergency services, we're going to be waiting a very long time. So mm -hmm. why don't we empower people to be able to help themselves? So right. what we did then was within, as a pilot project within rural Islamabad in, next to Bharakahu in a region called Pindbakwal, we trained the local community, people from the local community who are metric pass or less as first responders. They are now as rigorously trained as rescue 1122 officials and they have dealt with over 350 emergencies to date. Um, and, you know, we then went on to train women in that community. This is the community that gave us Mumtaz Kadri, the one who uh, murdered uh, Salman Tassir in an act of yeah. radicalism. Uh, in that community, we have trained women uh, who are now employed wow. and have driver's licenses and are dealing with emergencies. Um, and, and, you know, so like what, what, what began as teaching people how to save lives has now turned into teaching people how to transform their own lives. So, mm -hmm. in, in, and, and, and in that, helping meet our overall mission is, which is, you know, like empowering people to save lives. So we, we, through teaching people first aid, we have set up systems within rural areas that allow people to improve their quality of life and basic health. Um, and, and, you know, then what happened was that after uh, one and a half years of focusing on physical health, we began mm -hmm. to realize that there is a very, very strong need for mental health as well. And it just so happened that we had some really uh, pioneering psychologists on our team. And we decided let's get into psychological first aid, which is such a big thing right. that no one talks about, you know? So if, for example, there is an emergency, God forbid I was having a heart attack, uh, before you would even think of calling rescue 1122 or something, the first thing you would probably undergo is panic. And mm. most people don't know how to deal with panic. I couldn't deal with panic for a very long time. So, you know, how do you keep yourself calm? How do you keep everyone around you calm? Uh, we did a lot of focus on that. And then we jumped into general mental health. So right. like, uh, for example, this last year, we did a project in which uh, we worked with five schools from rural Islamabad, Jinme Marpatai Bhatoti. So we worked with the teachers, we trained them in mental health literacy, and now they know that, you know, Marpatai doesn't work. It actually traumatizes students. And we've seen a dramatic shift because of that. And, and now we're going to work in partnership with the Punjab, Islamabad, and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa governments to scale that up to 100 schools across these regions and then work with them on developing mental health policies, inshallah, for school students. So, you know, like it, it began as one thing and it, it has branched into different directions. But broadly speaking, we focus on first aid and mental health. Nice. That's amazing. I, I really appreciate all the work you guys are doing. Uh, Acha, so let's get back to like when you got started, how many people did you start with? Like what was your team strength at the time and how has it grown since? There was just me and I had no funding. So what was that? came back to Pakistan and I started teaching first aid at my sister's house to my sister and her friends. And then my friends joined in and then it became like a social thing. They would come and learn first aid for an hour. It would be interactive or maza it would be mm -hmm. team building. And then we would all go out and have lunch. And right. in this way, I got together people who were in policy, in urban planning in psychology, in education, et cetera, got them together, trained them in first aid. And then we began to think, you know, we can turn this into an organization. And that was basically how then Saving Nine evolved. In the, in the beginning, we were working as an NGO, completely volunteer capacity. Then we started right. you know, earning money. Then we got funding from Harvard University, Columbia University, uh, got a grant from the United States Institute of Peace, started getting clients like Beacon House and Head Start. Mm -hmm. And in this way, we've sort of turned into a social enterprise. Right. Okay. So um, 
I'm sure there would have been times where things would have gotten hard and uh, you would have been maybe struggling to get funding or to get a grant from someone. And at that point, yeah. you at some point might have thought about quitting, like what kept you going during this time and uh, uh, what like motivated you to get over this and how did you get over that? Oh boy. Uh, so yes, I have definitely been through an insane amount of stress uh, in this line of work. And I think every entrepreneur goes through a lot of stress when, and, and a lot of existential crises. Why, why, when I can have a nine to five in my life can be easy. Why am yeah. I doing this to myself? Uh, I think it's, it's like raising a baby. Uh, the baby cries in the middle of the night and you bang your head against the wall. But when the baby smiles, suddenly in that moment, you know, it was all worth it. So it's a bit like that. It's like, you know, like uh, I can never forget the baby smile. I can never forget the how amazing it feels to work with a team that you helped create on a mission that is entirely your own to do something you want to do. And you know that it's creating social impact. There's, there's no feeling like it. Once you've had that, it becomes very hard, if not impossible for you to go back to a simple nine to five or just be someone else's uh, employee. It does, you, can, you can't do it but it's a huge struggle. It involves a lot of sacrifice. You are often constantly under a lot of pressure to worrying about finances, worrying about how you're going to build the team, worrying about how you're going to meet project deadlines, how you're going to juggle that along with your personal life. It is a never ending struggle. And it doesn't help that in Pakistan, every single thing is made 10 times more complicated by the bureaucracy. <laughs> so it took me six months to open, uh, nee, six months to get my company registered. And that was because I didn't go through a lawyer. I'm like, I'll do it And hmm. every time I would go to the office, they would get, tell me to come back with a different set of documents they didn't tell me before. I went mad. It took me a year to open a bank account. Um, and the reason was because the first bank I went to, uh, Muslim Commercial Bank, MCB, they lost my documents after bureaucratic uh, inertia of like four to five months. They lost my documents. They didn't apologize. They said, Phir se le. <laughs> And unko pata nahi tha wow. how much quarry I went through to get those documents to begin with. The second bank, uh, finally, bohot zyada arm twisting ke baad and a lot of, you know, asking elder people in the bank who I know, finally mm. jaake they opened a bank account for us. And I've, this is the universal experience of a lot of people across Pakistan who are trying to open companies by themselves. Um, and you know, this is caused in part by the FATF regulations, but it's also just caused by the fact that People aren't used to, these banks aren't used to young people opening bank accounts for companies. They're mm -hmm. like, Acha, if this is in someone in their 50s or 40s, you know, like white hair, vagara, phir we will take them seriously. Varna, they don't take you seriously. It's a huge problem. But I basically, know, to, yeah, answer I that. Question, to answer your question, uh, it's the most meaningful thing I've ever done. So you can't go back mm -hmm. on it. Every other day, you will have moments where you're just like, let me just quit. But when the baby smiles, you, you're just like, you know, there's a reason why I did this. Yeah, that's really beautifully put, man. I've, I've never heard anyone else say, uh, say it like that. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's really good. Achakhar, um, what's your vision for uh, Saving Nine in the next, let's say, five to 10 years? Where do you see it, it going? Do you see that you could maybe uh, do this on a larger scale all over the country, something like that? Well, our vision is definitely to go global. But mm -hmm. like, I mean, you know, normally people think that we're going to set up an ambulance system across Pakistan or like, you mm -hmm. know, go beyond that. That's not our vision. Our vision is that there are so many health NGOs out there in Pakistan and across the world, so many of them, and none of them are working together. We want to bring them together. You know, we, we, we see in Pakistan that there's so many vehicles. You have the ED Foundation, you have all these 
you know, informal ambulances within every single city, almost none of them have staff that are trained in first aid. They're just drivers and they save lives. But, you know, if you could enhance their capacity, you could train them, you would be saving many, many, many more lives. So mm. our mission, our vision at Saving Nine is to bring all these NGOs together in Pakistan, together on a common platform, build their capacity, right. and in this way, create multifold impact. So, you know, we're really excited. For example, nowadays we're working on developing a mental health ambulance, uh, mm. the second in the world, and definitely the first in Asia after, and you know, uh, so this mental health ambulance, is, it, it caters to psychological emergencies of which there are many. Now, after that, we're not gonna set up mental health ambulances by ourselves across Pakistan. We're going to take these pilots, we're going to tell them to rescue one more tutor, we're gonna to go to the Yemen Foundation, we're gonna to go to all these other NGOs that provide ambulances, and we're going to help them build the capacity to do this as well. So this is our vision, building the capacity of other healthcare providers across the world and being thought leaders. Right. So is it difficult to convince people to get on board with something like a mental health ambulance? Because just talking about mental health is almost a taboo in Pakistan. So I'm sure convincing uh, the bureaucracy to get on board and convincing uh, maybe government officials to get on board with this might be a bit of a struggle. So what do you have planned for that? Like, how do you plan on convincing them that this is really important? You just don't use the word mental. You just, you know, you say, <laughs> okay. you, know, you, 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 just, you just call it an ambulance with additional facilities. You don't, you don't, you ah, don't okay. you, you, even in the villages that we work, we just yeah. don't say mental health and we don't say pagal. Uh, you mm. know, these, these words trigger people and obviously mental health does not mean pagal at all. And that is a very stigmatic yeah. word. But my point is that uh, if, if you get into a conversation with people about things like schizophrenia, they will open up in, in the communities that we work with, very, very conservative regions. People are very open about their mental health challenges, uh, even within government and even within schools. Uh, generally, people are willing to talk about it. They just don't want to publicly talk about it. And the reason mm. is because but in an individual capacity, everyone will talk about it. And I can tell you, all these universities, uh, LUMS, NABL, NAMAL, NAST, every single university you can think of in Pakistan yeah. has a mental health crisis on their campus and uh, it needs resolution. It needs tackling. Uh, and you know what often ends up happening is that students end up trying to sort it themselves. Either, you know, they uh, confide in a peer or they try to get a mental health professional, which is very, very difficult. And, you know, in an emergency, they don't know what to do. So this is the need gap we're trying to fulfill. And universities are very receptive to it, as long as you do not publicly give the impression that there is a mental health crisis on their campus. You should have what do you think is causing, it. what do you think is causing such a large, like, uh, mental health crisis on campus on so many universities? Is it because of, like, educational what pressure? Yeah. What, what do you think it is? I'm, well, it's complicated, but definitely I think COVID has um, amplified everything. Uh, mm. Generally, I just feel that in university, uh, what happens is that people are going through a phase of a lot of growth and a lot of change. So what happens is that with that, you have a lot of anxiety. So, you know, for example, uh, you might have a lot of financial pressure on you uh, to get through university. Uh, you could be forced into being married, someone you don't want to. Uh, you know, you could be uh, suffering from clinical depression, you could be really frustrated, you're not getting the grades you want to, they, 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 you can be a victim of sexual abuse, there's so many things. Um, and, and no one talks about them. And uh, when you talk to someone, anyone, you will be shocked at how many, how much trauma comes out of them. 
So like uh, and in universities where students are, you know, often for the first time on their own, they have to struggle with that a lot. And there's a lot of pressure on them and, and they don't find avenues to express that. And so what ends up happening is you end up with a lot of people having mental health challenges on university mm -hmm. campuses. And most of them pretend that everything is normal. Everything is fine. But you will, but, but, but every, a lot of people are in need of a lot of support. And right. because I've been first responder uh, mm -hmm. in a university campus, and I have dealt with a lot of psychological emergencies, I can tell you, it is across the board and it happens all the time everywhere. Panic attacks, uh, you know, like uh, drug abuse cases, mm. uh, suicidal ideation, uh, everything happens inside university campuses and even school campuses. And it's just that because it's not made news, right? We keep, we put parda on it. Because mm. there, we don't appreciate the true extent of it, but it's everywhere happening all the time. And uh, what we need to do is become more open about talking about it. And we need to provide our students with affordable support systems. Right. Acha, so uh, just going back to um, the entrepreneurial side of things, uh, when you were getting mm. started, uh, like you said, it was just you and you had no funding. Um, I just want to talk about the importance of networking at this point, because this is something that we discussed privately as well. And I feel yeah, like yeah. this might bring a lot of value to some of our listeners and viewers as well. So how important was networking for you at that time? And how much has that helped you um, since? Networking is extremely helpful. And I, as we were talking about that, use your unfair advantages. Everyone else will. You know, like if you have a network, use it. Mm. You're expected to use it. Uh, so I have the Fulbright network, I have the Columbia network, I have a Lumps network, uh, my family is generally well connected and I openly admit all these things and I use them. And the reason why I use them is because I want to use the privileges that I've been given to help society. Uh, and within Pakistani society and within our bureaucratic institutions, without privilege, it becomes extremely difficult to even open a bank account. So uh, the thing is that... Uh, so, so the other thing I feel about networking is that most networking does not happen at networking parties or mixers or these sort of events. Mm -hmm. I think those are extremely superficial and I, I, I can't stand them. <laughs> Instead, what you should do for networking is, you know, like go on puffy uh, meetings with people or like, you know, do some sort of sports hobby or like join a class together. Uh, with different people or join a fellowship or a cohort. That makes a tremendous difference. And it, because in that we're spending continuous time with people and people aren't always being self-defensive and trying to show themselves off. You get to know yeah. them in an authentic capacity. Then they start to realize who you are and then they trust you and then they open their networks to you. That's what makes a difference. So if you want to, for example, network with the CEO of a big hi-fi corporation, I don't know, like Telenor or something. If mm -hmm. you meet them in an official capacity, they're not going to take, take you very seriously. If mm. you, for example, end up providing tuitions to one of their students or one of their children, or you know, you like uh, uh, happen to meet him at tennis every week or something mm. like that, that will get you uh, substantial long-term gains. Yeah. And this sense. is something yeah. I teach in my social entrepreneurship course at NAS nowadays that, you know, uh, everything you know about networking, forget it. Just don't go to these networking socializers events. They are just pretentious, pointless, and useless. Instead, work on deep, meaningful connections over activities and bonding. Right. Just, so being a young entrepreneur like you are, 
um, and even like younger when you started, um, what were some of the challenges you faced just for being young? Because um, I feel like this is also from a personal example, like people don't take you seriously when you're a young person talking about something serious. So, yeah. or like starting a company, starting your own business and something like what you're doing, which is very large scale and has a great social impact. Like, did you yeah. face those challenges of people not taking you seriously or people undermining some of the things that you're doing? Every single day, all day, it happens. It drives me mad. Well, the thing is that I use your unfair advantages again. Nah? Uh, hmm. Tell them which university you went to, went to. Tell them, you know, wow them over with your English because these two things <laughs> immediately help people so much. Uh, wake up, tell them you have traveled internationally. You're not just, you know, some kid who's come out of a house and, you know, ab jake is making it out in the world. Uh, mm. These things help people sort of, and, and then the way you dress. If, uh, like, you know, when you're, when you're talking to people in their 50s and 60s and 70s, if you dress casually, they don't take you seriously. Mm. So, you know, uh, doing the whole kurta with coat on, uh, having a business card ready in hand, having a briefcase with yeah. you rather than a bag, these sort of things immediately... Uh, make a big psychological difference. Uh, mm. So th 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 these these would be some starting points. Having said that, ageism is always going to be there and you just have to learn to navigate it. I hate it when in a professional conversation, someone immediately calls me beta. So, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. wo, wo, that's that's like a power play from there. And beta ho, so, you know, I will view you from that lens. And then you, Haan. the entire conversation is about pivoting that and making them realize, uh, no, I have a lot of experience. So basically, uh, yes. Uh, I, I think this is something you just learn as you go along, but definitely the way you dress makes a difference. Knowing what lingo to work with them makes a difference. Talking about your experiences from the outset of the conversation makes a big difference. Hmm. And speaking in English often makes a big difference. <laughs> Which is sad Achha. because, you know, yeah. I am using my elitism and my colonial uh, legacy, uh, <laughs> you know, to my advantage. But uh. the thing is, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, if, if you have a privilege, you should use it to help others. Yeah, 100%. Achha, what's uh, what's some general advice you'd want to give uh, young entrepreneurs who are like about to get started on their journey, who are unsure whether they should go through with this or not? What, what's some advice you want to give them? Um, I would tell them that first, try it out without putting any money in it. Uh, try it out for a month and see what it feels like doing something on your own schedule, trying to build a team by yourself, uh, trying to self-manage, the excitement that comes with it. Try that for a month. And at the same time, uh, know your weaknesses. Uh, if you do not have a business background, admit that to yourself and look for advice. Because if you try to learn everything about business by yourself, like I did, you will go mad. Uh, and, and the thing is that often uh, you will end up making mistakes that perhaps you won't need to if you go for professional advice from the outside. So take advice. Uh, but at the same time, uh, entrepreneurship is like choosing to have a baby. Now, right. when you, you know, like when you choose to have a baby, you want to have a baby because the image of a baby is something very, very, uh, exciting for you, you want to go through all the, you know, uh, amazing experiences of having a baby. But mm. having a baby means you need to have a commitment for life. Once you have a baby, you can't tell, you know, okay, through two, three years of having my baby, now I'm going to abandon my baby. You don't do that. So the thing is that uh, it's a commitment. If, if you're going to raise a team 
and you are going to and and you've dedicated your life to a certain cause then you have to go into it with that mindset as they say don't half ass it so yeah. basically like uh, and and you have to be mentally ready to take care of that baby you have to get, take care of the baby in the middle of the night when it cries you have to do the manual labor entrepreneurship looks sexy but you often have to do very mundane things like you know mm. uh fill in every single receipt write it a billion documents uh a lot of things you have to do a lot of grunt work all the time so mm. be ready for that but when the baby smiles it's all worth it but it is a path it is it is a path and you should first experiment with it in a soft capacity learn about it from people in the field before you really commit to it but there's right. nothing like it if you can pull it off there's absolutely nothing like it it's the most meaningful thing you can do in my opinion mm, 100% acha um, i just want to talk a little bit more about education because i feel like um i personally see a lot of problems with the education system in pakistan uh both public and private um how do you like because you actually have a background in education you've studied this um how do you think that we should change the education system in pakistan or if we should change the education system in pakistan education system in pakistan implies that there is a system so the thing <laughs> is that um kya kehte hain where do i begin okay so the the okay so if we're talking about public education one of the mm-hmm. biggest challenges is enrollment the fact is that mm-hmm. we have like around 22 million children outside of school who have never been to school Yeah. uh and you know we have a huge uh youth bulge within pakistan there's a lot of unemployed youth a lot of the youth that aren't going through education so one big challenge is that how do you get these people uh through an education system how do you build their skills mm-hmm. uh and 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 you know like the government currently since i've worked with them for a year i can tell you so the thing is that the government is a bureaucratic mess and uh, there is a lot of politics and there is a lot of uh, tensions in the government it becomes very hard from within the government to sort of sustain a policy initiative generally it becomes very challenging because you know um, for example when i was working with the punjab government the secretaries mm-hmm. would change every week the program director would change every few months so the thing is that uh, it, it when, when you have that level of insanity and you add nab cases onto it it becomes mm. very difficult through government directly to uh create impact if you will in a sustainable manner but without the government you can't do anything because the government is the entity that has uh maximum reach by far throughout pakistan so mm. one thing i really like is that now they're working on public private partnerships for example uh punjab took a good initiative of partnering with the citizens foundation uh do you know i uh, have the citizens foundation adopt different public schools and that's happening in islamabad as well mm-hmm. uh similarly uh kya kehte hain ki i feel like i feel like the thing is that we need to focus on systemic changes you know for example if you look at uh the punjab government's uh punjab curriculum textbook board right they have mm-hmm. a huge committee of people that help design our textbooks Well, when you look at the actual textbook you're like what on earth is this end result and you're just like why how did this happen and then you realize that a lot of those people in those committees you know unke naam likhe hote hain lekin don't they don't actually substantially contribute to them um you know the actual people who are doing the grunt work are people who are not qualified uh and and then you have issues of lobbies for example ye jo textbooks publishers hote hain mm-hmm. they try really hard to get uh 
their authors and their materials published, even if they're substandard, there's a lot of complications over there. So like systemic changes would make a big difference. If you have like, you know, this part of the textbook must be uh, developed by someone with this, this, this much experience and this, this, this qualification. If you could do that, that would make a big difference. Um, if, if so, and, and this was, I wrote a policy document last year that highlighted how we could go about this step by step. And I hope that the Punjab mm -hmm. government at some point takes that up. But, but like, this is what, like the problem with uh, the Pakistani education system and Pakistan in general is that everybody is looking for quick fixes. Everybody's looking for a lot of things that require a lot of budget. Everybody wants to do projects that are millions of dollars or, you know, mm. crore rupees uh, that look flashy on the internet and you can get a lot of media coverage out of. But the real work that makes a big difference is often subtle. It requires policy changes. It, requ it requires creating the right teams and, and creating the right work culture. Nobody wants to do that because it's not flashy. It's not tangible. It's not something you can immediately highlight in, new, in the news, like, you know, opening 10 new schools. Mm. I feel like uh, this is the way forward where, where we start think, talking about systemic changes, where we start talking about cultural change rather than talking about, okay, we opened 10 new schools today. The problem mm. with opening 10 new schools is within three years, they will become uh, not maintained if you go to any uh, school education department within Pakistan, I guarantee you unki, uh, unki se paint hoga. Yeah. If you go to any school within Pakistan, public school, you will, it will look like it's about to, you know, crumble. So Yeah, and like, it's really sad to see. <laughs> yes, and the reason is simply because there is no systemic oversight. You know, it becomes mm -hmm. so easy to take donor-funded money and set up something, right? But then sustaining yeah. it requires creating uh policies that are followed up on in the long term that are mm. independent of how many people are changed at the top leadership in pakistan what ends up happening is that uh a lot of things come down to the char charisma of the leader right and as soon mm. as that cult of leadership finishes as soon as that cult of personality finishes as soon as that person disappears the whole initiative disappears mm. so like what what and, and we don't talk about this we're always celebrating individuals leaders like imran khan we're not talking about the processes we're not talking about the systems themselves it's not in our lexicon it's not in our mindset when when we start talking about these things a lot of change will come because we'll start okay. pressurizing politicians to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you mentioned uh, a cultural shift that needs to happen uh, in regards to education. Now, um, I'll bring up something that's slightly controversial. Um, how do you, and this was a part of the national debate a little while ago, people were talking about it. What do you feel, how do you feel about uh, religion being a compulsory part of the school curriculum in uh, public schools? And do you think it should it's be there or should it not be there? It's, it's always been a compulsory part of the school curriculum in public schools, so it's nothing new that it's there. Mm -hmm. uh, no, but do you think it should be there or not? I feel that we live in a society that is very highly religious, and as per the constitution, and regardless of what Jinnah envisioned it to be, currently we are a theocracy in some sense. So, mm -hmm. I mean, as per that, yes, religion is meant to be part of the state, uh, so I like, it's not a matter of whether I feel it ought to be or not to be, it is here to stay. And now the thing is that we need to focus on, uh, building critical thinking and teaching, uh, religious ideas and values with quality. Uh, you know, like now, now there's a lot of work around what Imran Khan, Imran Khan calls creating a unified national curriculum. 
Mm-hmm. It's all political buzzwords. What they're actually doing is nothing of the sort. Uh, it's not like you know people in O and A levels are going to study the exact same thing through the exact same books as people in a madrasa. It's not mm-hmm. that way. Uh, and this is just a political slogan. This is not what is happening. But what is happening is actually fairly nice. What they're doing so far is that they are um, saying that everyone needs to study at least these 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 topics at this 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 grade level. which is fair enough right so in a madrasa school if you're not studying physics for example up to a certain extent now that has been standardized and okay. by compromise if for example you know in a elite private school you're not studying say uh, urdu or islamia to a certain extent that has been standardized too in and of mm-hmm. itself is not such a bad thing uh, and uh, the thing is that i feel that we need to talk about religion i think it is really sad when we don't talk about religion i feel that the problem is that religion is overly sanitized if you for example talk about what we study within head start right head start mein humne jo islamic curriculum kiya tha usme we don't study shias we don't study that there are other schools of thought in islam we don't study anything about sufism we don't study anything about what happened after the khilafat none of it so we're left with this impression that islam is a monolith and if you look at the kind of questions we study within the islamiyat curriculum it's all ratta it's all road hmm. no one asks us for an opinion no one asks us how do you apply this to your everyday life hmm. right so what ends up happen what i feel we need to do is not erase religion from the curriculum i feel we need to enhance the quality of conversation about religion in the curriculum right and that will make a big difference i call it ideological constipation what happens is that uh, uh, in, in private schools what happens is that you have people they study religion through the ratta system hmm. and they study science through a critical thinking system and they are taught ki acha theek hai religion is faith so you know ye to you have to take at face value but at the same time in science they're taught to question everything so they're constipated they want to think critically about religion but they're taught not to think critically about religion at the same time <laughs> ideological constipation so hmm. th- so so my point is study science and study religion but across them focus on building critical thinking skills which is a lot more complicated than it sounds because if you want to have a conversation about blasphemy in pakistan you are going to be shot so you know there need to be subtle ways to have these conversations and we can begin to do that there's a lot of research in how you do this you know how do you mm. talk about very controversial topics in a way that doesn't trigger anyone and we can begin to do that so i feel the debate shouldn't be about how much religion or how much science we put into the curriculum it should be more about how are we focusing on building critical thinking skills across the curriculum right that even makes science, that makes a lot of sense even, huh? even in science the, uh, my thesis at columbia in my masters was on how science is used to brainwash people so if you for example open sign any science textbook in pakistan you will see pictures of okay maybe abdul qadir khan but that said you uh, like from pakistan right beyond that you will see pictures of white men from europe so you will get this impression that science is largely been created by white men when it isn't it's not the case uh, in this way your mind is colonized you won't see any women so you will believe that science was never contributed to by women it's a big problem you're being brainwashed and then if you open any science textbook uh, you will see this little narrative about galileo versus the church mm-hmm. now you know galileo represents rationality represents critical thinking the church represents traditionalism and all that jazz it's nonsense this is not what actually happened and there is a huge amount of literature that shows it was a lot more complicated but what the science curriculum tells you 
is that there is science and there is religion. There is rationality and there is irrationality. These things are factually not true. The, the, you know, but, but in this way, what we end up doing by design is creating misunderstanding. We end up creating this idea that science is somehow superior to other modes of understanding. For example, the social sciences or the humanities. Um, and, and you know, this is a huge problem. So I feel that brainwashing occurs within the science curriculum very much in Pakistan as well. We don't talk about Abdus Salam. Why do we not yeah. talk about Abdus Salam, our only Nobel Prize winner in science? We don't talk about him. And the reason is because again, it is too controversial to talk about him. So science, so mm. it's not just that, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, one could argue that we should add in more religion in science because we should talk about people like Abdus Salam. When we, when we remove religion from science, we don't talk about people like Abdus Salam, we are missing the larger picture. I think it's more complicated than saying, add this much religion, add this much science. We have to talk about these things as a whole and talk about them with a critical thinking mindset. That's amazing. Osama, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I really appreciate you uh, answering all of these questions. <laughs> I think this has been really informative for everyone who manages to watch this or, or listen to it. Uh, thank you very much, Mazamil. Bohat mazaya. And uh, it was a it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you, Sama.